Welcome to the Wineverse podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is a serial entrepreneur. His name is James Kilpatrick, and he is the chair of Gravity Lab. Now, Gravity Lab is a fascinating business that offers space as a service, SaaS. And the mission statement is to democratize access to microgravity and space environments. In this episode, we discuss James's background, what drew him to zero gravity environments, the activities and industries they focus on, and of course, what the future holds for the business. James is a legend. He's so knowledgeable about the industry, which is growing, exciting. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. This is the Why Invest podcast. James Kilpatrick, welcome to the podcast. Now, James, we're going to start with your background. How did you start your career? Well, I read accountancy at university, and we were pretty much all destined to go on and become accountants, but I couldn't face doing any more exams, but I was interested in business, so I managed to secure a job as a fund manager, training as a fund manager, working with a small company called MIM, or Montague Investment Management, which went on to become Invesco. I Lasted there for a couple of years, and then Big Bang came along, and I moved across to become an investment banker. I worked for a number of investment banks, working predominantly on the Japanese markets. In the 1980s, we were quite focused on Japanese equity warrants, and then on Japanese equities and, to an extent, Asian equities sort of through the 90s. That's how I got started. I suppose it gave me exposure to lots of different types of businesses and lots of business models, which satisfied my curiosity and gave me plenty of variety. And so what then drew you to the world of space and what got you excited about gravity-free environments? Well, I think the first thing was that I found that working in investment banks, they were quite samey and they were quite large and they were quite bureaucratic. I had made a few investments privately into friends' businesses and those businesses were much more exciting than my day job. At the end of the 90s, I decided I would try to switch across to go and work in small companies or sort of venture-backed businesses. So for the last 20-odd years, I've been working with a variety of small companies, some areas that have probably been more successful for me than others, and particularly large markets that are being disrupted by technology. And I think that space was one of those markets that was emerging. There have been big changes in the space market over the last 10 or 15 years with the advent of much more private capital, particularly in America. And you think of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk really disrupting the markets over there. So it struck me as a, an opportunity, but also I have a fascination with scale, dimension, perspective. And I suppose that no greater way to indulge that interest than looking at the space market. I see. And actually, I mean, looking at your CV, it is a, a sort of smorgasbord of private investments and private enterprises from sort of 2005 to 2022. But Gravity Lab was started in 2019. And I suppose we should start by introducing Gravity Lab. What is the sort of elevator pitch for Gravity Lab? Well, our mission in life is to defy gravity. Gravity affects everything on Earth, and mostly it's great because it sort of keeps us stuck to the planet, but actually it's an interference when it comes to science and a lot of research and innovation. So 
if we can remove gravity from the equation, it's a bit like an old radio signal where you had a lot of distortion and now you have beautifully pure new digital signals. If you can take gravity out of science, then you get a much purer physical result. And a lot of development on Earth in terms of science and manufacturing is being hampered really by gravity and the effects that it has on materials, on life sciences, etc. And so many of these organizations that are involved in these areas are wanting to experiment in an environment which is free of gravity, and we will provide people with access to that. Also, space itself provides a very different perspective for people on work that are on Earth. A lot of what we do on Earth is affected by space, whether it's navigation or agriculture or it's watching TV. There's very little fact that isn't affected by what's happening in space. And so the elevator pitch for Gravity Lab would be that we're trying to provide people with access to microgravity and to space in a much more affordable and much more accessible way than has ever been done before. It sounds like the addressable market is large and probably quite varied, and, and maybe you don't even know, you know the potential use cases for this. And we'll come back to that. But I want to talk about the technical part of the business. I mean, how do you actually achieve microgravity and zero gravity? Effectively, microgravity is a, a state of weightlessness, most easily understood by driving along a country lane and going over a humpback bridge and you get that feeling in your stomach of weightlessness. We're trying to achieve that at a consistent level over different periods of time. And the main way that we will do that is using what is called a suborbital rocket. The rocket launches, flies on a parabolic arc, and as it goes over the apex of that arc for a period of time, effectively the payload bay inside the rocket will experience weightlessness and anything within that payload bay will go through a period of weightlessness or microgravity. And the longer and more stable that period is, the better it is for doing research and development and indeed for testing products and equipment that's going to be used in space in the future. So where are you now? So how long can you achieve weightlessness and microgravity? We've actually developed a drone system over the last three years and we've done commercial demonstration of that earlier in the year and the full commercial service is going to launch next quarter that will typically offer five to ten seconds of microgravity at a time but we can do repeated drops using our drone system during the course of the day we can offer a fairly extensive test campaign and that compares with a couple of seconds that's typically available in drop towers in europe and in america with the rockets, we'll be looking at more like five to seven minutes of microgravity. And again, that compares with about three to four minutes that's currently available using other rocket-delivered systems. But our rockets won't enter commercial activities probably for another 18 months. So we're about four years through a five-year development program on the rockets. It's quite interesting. You're sort of sitting between science and commerce in a sense you know you're at that kind of inflection point where you're starting to be able to monetize this i wonder who else is doing this what does the competitive environment look like at the current time well there are a lot of companies that are trying to build rockets to put things into orbit and while that's fantastic and requires a huge amount of investment it's a bit of a bun fight and there's probably only room for 
10, 15 companies that are actually going to be doing that you know, over the long term. And some of those companies have the ability to put things into space. And while things are in orbit, they experience microgravity. But the problem is you can't get those things back. So if you're doing research or testing, you want to see the results of your payload having been through microgravity. But in terms of people that are building suborbital rockets, specifically with the intent of bringing payloads back so customers can examine the results of their research and testing, there's probably only a couple of other companies in the world that are doing it at the moment. There's one in America called Blue Shift, and there's, uh, and there's one in, uh, in Asia as well. But at the moment, I would say the Blue Shift's the only sort of tangible competitor. And how closely have you been working with the UK and European space agencies? And, you know, have they been a help or hindrance? Well, hopefully not a hindrance, but, you know, how has that relationship developed? Well, it's interesting because the government in the UK has got a very clearly defined sort of space policy, and we really sit right at the heart of that. They also have this significant agenda for promoting sort of science and innovation. And again, we, we sit at the heart of that. In respect to the European Space Agency, we were inducted into an incubator program that they run last year, and we got a small grant from them. And then at the end of last year, the UK Space Agency awarded us a £400,000 grant to help accelerate our development program. And we completed the work on that at the end of March. And we've had sort of some glowing reports back from them. So we work very closely with the UK Space Agency now. And we're looking forward to working on some more projects with them in the months ahead. And turning back to the sort of business side of your enterprise, you know, when you're thinking about potential customers, I mean, how much of your time at the moment is knocking on doors, you know, ringing people up from, you know, as you mentioned, biotech, pharma, materials sectors, and how much of your time is spent trying to get in touch with those people and sell the proposition? Well, we spent probably about 15 months now actively canvassing people that we think might be interested in our services. And mostly we've been doing that to make sure that we're creating vehicles that can provide services that people will actually want to use. So we've been effectively qualifying our services to make sure that they're the right sort of services to be developing. And that's gone very well. And we've sort of accidentally developed a pipeline of interest. And as things stand at the moment, we've got, I think, around 25 customers who between them will be looking to spend about £3.6 million on our services over the next year and a half to two years. So although we haven't launched our services yet, we've got a good range of customers. And I suppose we've been in touch with people spanning about 30 different industries over that period. And if there was one conclusion we had from everything we're doing at the moment, the one thing we're not going to be short of is customers, because everybody seems to be really chomping at the bit to try and get access to microgravity, because historically it's been very inaccessible, but also because we've reached the limits of what we can do on Earth in environments which are blighted by gravity. So something like semiconductor manufacturing, for example, it's unlikely we'll be able to really push the boundaries much further in terms of making more efficient, smaller, better semiconductors if we're trying to manufacture them in an environment which is affected by gravity. I see. And then turning, I suppose, is a related uh, question, turning to the sort of capital raising and the funding of your business. I wonder, um, you know, now you have that £3.6 million pipeline, I wonder, you know, what doors are you knocking on in terms of, you know, funding your business? 
and expanding the operation? Well, initially, I funded the setup of the business and then managed to get some friends and people that had backed me in previous businesses to put up some capital. We then extended that through some business angels and one or two funds that look for EIS-type investments with EIS qualifying. And we secured an investment from the British Design Fund last summer. We've also added a couple of family offices to our cap table during the course of last year. So overall, we've raised about a bit over £2 million in equity and a bit over half a million pounds in grants so far. But we're now at, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, an inflection point, and we're really stepping up to our sort of commercial rollout. So we're looking really to add some more investors. Predominantly, we're focusing actually on family offices and high net worth individuals still, because the venture capital community in the UK is not terribly orientated towards the space sector. And they tend to like to invest in what they know. For the type of business that we are, which we're still largely pre-revenue, not completely, but largely pre-revenue, people that have got a a slightly longer-term perspective and maybe looking for bigger gains over the longer term rather than driving immediate quarterly returns, you know, would suit us better. Our experience with family offices to date has been very good. So that's been the main focus of our attention recently. And how do the conversations differ? I mean, can you draw distinctions between the types of investor you're targeting and the kind of conversations you're having with them? You know, do you have to, you know, change the pitch deck? Do you have to sort of change the language that you're speaking? Or, you know, is it pretty similar across the board? I think that every investor is unique and they all have different interests. I think generally speaking, wealthy private investors and family offices are wanting over a period of time to increase their wealth and they want to invest in a business that they think will give them a long-term return they probably want to invest in a business where we're making it the best business it can be and if at some point in the future it generates some dividends that that would be tremendous and if there's an exit a little bit further down the line then that's better still and i think we're all committed to going on that particular growth path i think when venture capitalists concern, quite often their business model is around the fees that they earn on the assets under management and the success of the underlying businesses, they probably hate me for saying it, may not be their number one priority. So the narrative we've had with most of our investors has been pretty much the same. We're trying to build a business that will be successful over the long run. We need the funding initially for the development program. But when the revenues kick in, the cash flow model for our business actually is very attractive because we tend to get paid in advance. So we would hope to generate not only good margins, but also a fair amount of cash, which would fund any ongoing development that we would plan to do further down the line. There must be an interesting moment when you're talking to investors and you're thinking about valuation and valuation of your business, because you kind of need to have a long, hard look in the mirror and think, okay, well, what is the value? How do I value this? Is it a discounted cash flow methodology from your said pipeline? Or is it the superior product offering versus your competitors? Or is it your superior research and the bright individuals working in Gravity Lab? I wonder if you can pinpoint where you see value in your business? Well, I think we have got unique technology in a number of areas. We're the only company in the UK that can manufacture its own rocket fuel. We've built our own flight computer you know, for rockets, which is a unique achievement among the rocket businesses here. And we've done it at probably at a tenth of the cost of buying something in you know, from elsewhere. 
we've got patent protection on our drop pod system. We've applied for patents on our payload system as well. So there's a lot of really good technology. Our test stand, actually, I think is the largest test stand in the UK, if not in Europe, now that we've, we've just refurbished that. The technical achievements are a really important sort of backstop, if you like, to what we're doing and put us in a very strong competitive position. Ultimately, the ability to generate cash at high margins using the hardware that we've got to generate services that people want is the other main factor. It would be lovely to use a discounted cash flow analysis to value the business because that would probably value the business at sort of 40 or 50 million pounds at the moment. And uh, at the moment, we're a bit short of that, but we remain optimistic and we can see that actually as the revenues begin to come in, that the value accretion will be relatively rapid. I see. And so as you look to the future and you think about where Gravity Lab may be in sort of one, three, five years time, do you have sort of set goals for those time horizons? I think our first goal is to get our two main commercial services up and running. The first one would be using the drop pod system, which is available to people on a very local basis at relatively low cost. The second one will be to get our hybrid rockets running and in operational service because they become very cash generative. That then, I think, makes the business look very different from the development phase that it's just sort of coming out of. Sorry to interrupt. What does that require? Does that require capital going into research and development, R&D, or does that require more capital in actual production? Where does that capital get allocated? So yes, it's research and development spending, but mostly that is on people. The good news is that in the UK and Europe, it's less expensive to employ people than it would be in, say, America in this particular sector. But people cost is our biggest cost, and we've got engineers from all over the world working for us in it now. I think we've got 25 staff, and I think we cover 11 different countries in terms of where they've come from. People cost is our main cost. Capital costs can be high, and we would prefer to make things ourselves rather than buy things in. It gives us more control, so it de-risks projects for us, but it requires more capital. We, at the moment, are looking at probably using grant income in order to cover some of those capital costs. Therefore, it probably nets out the grant income will cover the capital costs. So any equity capital we're raising would largely go towards people costs initially and some infrastructure costs around premises, et cetera, to operate from. And then, sorry, going, I interrupted you. You were talking about the one, three, and five years. You know, Where would you like to see the business in, say, five years' time? Well, I think our target would be to have revenue of around £100 million in five years from now. And that would be split across what we call space access, which would be the suborbital rockets. And that would probably be about three quarters of the revenue. We'd have about 10% of the revenue from the drone system and about 15% of the revenue from other technology solutions where people are licensing our technology. And we're already in discussions with people actually to license technology now. And we've, out of our pipeline, probably a, a third of it is around licensing technology to a couple of large FTSE type companies. I see. And then I always ask this question. I think it's an important question, but um, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are perhaps trying to start their career and are interested in pursuing a career in space or indeed microgravity? What skills do you think they need to equip themselves with to be successful? I think probably they need to be open-minded 
and they need to be tenacious, not specifically around the rocket industry, but generally I think they need to find a way to differentiate themselves, have a frustration with the way a lot of large companies work and they screen CVs using computers, which makes it difficult to sort of differentiate yourself. When I'm interviewing somebody, I always look for the thing that makes them different rather than making them the same as everybody else. I think specifically in terms of the space industry, there are a lot of people that will study for masters in astrophysics, etc. But that doesn't necessarily need to be your gateway in. If you are a good electronics engineer or you're a good material scientist or a good chemist, there are lots of different types of route that you can pursue. But even now, there are people that don't fancy going to university. There are opportunities through apprenticeships, et cetera, in engineering type fields that would allow people to get entry into the sector. The breadth of roles is so enormous. Yeah. I mean, it does sound like an incredibly exciting industry to be in. I wonder um, how you assess the sort of various competitive advantages on this side of the Atlantic and over in America. I mean, clearly there's much bigger operations over in America. Are they better funded? What are, are there any sort of distinctions you can draw between the two? I think private capital has invaded the space sector in America faster, but they've done it with the encouragement of the American government and to an extent with the support of things like the defense sector in the US. So they're ahead of the curve. The UK government is very much putting space at the front of its agenda, which is really exciting. But they are behind the curve in terms of regulatory activity at the moment because the Civil Aviation Authority hasn't regulated space activity before because we haven't had very much of it. So it's taking a bit of time to catch up. And the unlocking of private capital Again, there are relatively few VCs in the UK that are focused on the space sector, where there are plenty in the US. But most of the UK space industry, to the extent it's been financed by VCs, that money's come from America or come from Europe rather than from the UK itself. Mm -hmm. So structurally, it's slightly different. But being smaller and being a little bit behind the curve, we're probably accelerating faster than the States is at the moment. And certainly in the more specialist areas, like the ones that Gravity Lab operates in, the pace of change is very rapid. And you're absolutely right. It's very, very exciting. It is indeed. James Kilpatrick, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, James Kilpatrick. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.